WWDB Radio. You might not think it's something special. We got down here to the studio. My good brother Michael drove me down here. Make sure I arrived safe and sound, not stressed out. Everything was going perfectly. We get inside the studio, and Sam from Beasley comes out. He says, can I talk to you? Now, usually this does not play out well for a guy like me. You know what I'm saying? But he had the greatest things. Do you want to hear what he had to say? Well, I can't tell you because he broke the FCC rules. So... Unfortunately, stay between me and Sam, but I do appreciate the comments. It was a great start to the day. I've got a big guest today, my brother Kevin from Colorado. He's a big guy, almost as big as me, almost as big as me. I want to emphasize that, like a little brother, I suppose. I'll, I'll give you a little spoiler alert. The uh, the tie with, with Kevin and I is that Kevin basically... Um, was the guy who reintroduced me back to the to the unit, invited me back to the 30-year re- re- reunion, I guess you could say. Uh, but Kevin's a big guy. We kind of look alike. I guess I have one question, Kevin. Are you really going to run the Marine Corps Marathon, you beast? Yes, I am. 2015. Uh, 2025, excuse me. You're giving yourself plenty of time to, to yeah. get ready. That's a good idea. I think yeah. you might need a little more time, bro. I'm just being honest with you. Have you been training? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You you better be counting the days and the miles very carefully. I appreciate you being here, my brother. And uh, I know we had a lot to talk about. You've got a great story. Just to tell you uh, how I know Kevin. Kevin was on Gun 2 in 1st Platoon, and I was on Gun 1. We'll maybe get into a little stories, uh, share some stories on all that. But before we get into that, I want to get into something a little bit else for a minute. And I'm anxious to hear uh, what you have to say about this as well there, Kevin. But let me lay this out a little bit. After last week, I got a lot of interest in the show. The momentum's been fantastic. I appreciate all the comments. And a lot of people are asking the same question. Chris, what else are you going to talk about? Well, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, at this point, we're going to need two, three, four hours a slot here to get through all this. And that's not going to happen. So we're just going to do it one step at a time. But there's many issues that I want to talk about that are issues that are important to veterans. And today, what I want to talk about is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I don't know how many people remember it. You know, in today's day and age, it's very interesting how how quickly we forget things. But I remember it very well because I predicted very well exactly what was going to happen. Heartbreaking to me, really, which I vocalized in the form of anger, but it was heartbreaking all the all the same. So what, what exactly happened over there with the Afghanistan withdrawal? How many people even really know? How many know? One soldier, one sailor, 11 Marines dead, killed there. They had their honors. Some people remember. But that was really just one piece of the events that took place there. We saw images of people that were so desperate to get out after all of the millions and billions of dollars and years of how many veterans killed and, and wounded over there. And the end of that, the grand finale, was literally people so desperate that they're falling out of the wheel wells of clinging to airplanes taking off because they want to get away from the Taliban. That's what we got to see. Of course, all that was very polished by the wonderful American 
media propaganda machine. You know, we smoothed that all over. So what did the Marines see? That's the question. They saw something much different. It was a great story in Leather Neck, Leather Neck, can't talk right today. Leather Neck, that would be. Not Mech, Neck, Leather Neck. <laughs> magazine, an incredible magazine. The magazine of the Marines, they say. Maybe I'll talk more about that. So what did the Marines see? What, what are we not being told? That's my question. Well, let's look at the photographs for a second because I don't know about you. What's the saying? Believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. So let's focus on the half that we can see. And here's an image here of a young Marine. I don't know. He looks to be maybe early 20s. And he's in full combat gear, almost like operator mode from where we were. He's got his helmet, his combat gear. He's got a rifle on his back. And he's carrying a girl in his arms. Some savage. Some threat to democracy, I guess. Here's some of the first-hand accounts that were revealed in Leatherneck Magazine. We saw people being beaten and executed. Nice way of saying murdered, killed, slaughtered. But there was nothing we could do. At different points, we'd see the Taliban sit down on the shipping containers and grab a couple of kids. And the kids would just sit up there with them. What tal- what the Taliban were doing with their families, I don't know. But it was just weird seeing a toddler holding their baby brother or sister sitting up there in the heat alone with the Taliban. You know, why Why would the Marines, it's interesting that the Marines would point this out. It's not the reason that I brought it up. Here's this Marine reflecting on the Taliban sitting on top of a shipping container with a bunch of kids. Why would anybody care? Why would he care? You know why? Because he's being hyper alert and he wasn't expecting to see that in a combat zone. He's like, and that's why it stood out to him. Here's another account. Turmoil enveloped the world within the sniper's view. A sea of people pressed down toward Abbey Gate from up and down the canal. Other Marines from 2-1 held the ground outside, struggling to keep the peace. The canal proved to be an open sewer, and the Marines nicknamed it Crap Creek. The smell of feces, urine, blood, and decaying bodies rose into the tower, creating a toxic and intolerable environment around the gate. But the filth and stench failed to dissuade civilians. They waded through the knee-high water up to the side nearest the gate. Marines witnessed unimaginable scenes as men, women, and children trampled each other to death. We're just going to take this as like another day in Afghanistan, I guess. Another day for the Marines. Marines, though, clung to a sense of decency. They wanted to help but felt incapable in the wake of so much terror and tragedy. Even so, opportunities arose. Without clear guidance, young Marines acted independently. I want you to remember I said that. Moms were, listen to this a second. Moms were trying to give away their kids. They would throw the kids to us, stated one Marine in an interview from Central Command's declassified investigation into the attack at Abbey Gate. We didn't have a choice then because the kids would be hurt. You'd be surprised how many people threw babies you have no idea. Imagine for a second you're 19 years old like these young Marines and you're thrown into this. What would you have done? Well, Who cares? You weren't there. Neither was I. What did the Marines do? That's what I want to know. Nobody seemed to care. They were sent over there without proper training, without proper gear, nothing. Yet here's what it says. The Marines clung to a sense of decency. They wanted to help but felt incapable in the wake of so much terror and tragedy. Even so, opportunities arose. 
Without clear guidance, young Marines acted independently, making decisions that meant life or death for people outside the gate. First couple of days, I was looking around to see everybody else's reaction or to see how they handled things, but eventually I realized it doesn't come down to me asking somebody if I can do something if it's going to help. Corporal Marklin said, it came down to understanding that right now, no decision is the worst decision for these people. So what is the point of all this? Eight minutes in, Marines acting, not politicians, not the command. It was young Marines that stepped up and showed the most humanity in a sea of pure evil. Nobody showing any compassion, really. Afghan, Taliban, otherwise, just people clinging to survival, really. The Marines, for their part, they would give it literally nothing. I'm reading about this. It makes me sick. Just throw them on a plank. Go over there and and get some of these people out. Well, then they were forced to clean up, of course. Did you hear this part of the story? This is the worst part of the story. I don't think anybody in the American public, they left the Marines there. After 13 were dead, 11 Marines, one sailor, one uh, army, they left the Marines there then to, to clean up the feces and the mess to make sure that you know, they left it in proper order for the Taliban. Can you imagine being a, a young Marine on the on the receiving end of that? I'll say this. Leatherneck did a great job, I think, in carrying, uh, capturing the heartfelt emotion of this story, which I really do respect. You know, it's, it's very well read. It could be like a poem or a kid's story. It's very sweet. I really do respect it to a point. But here's my question where I'm sitting today. Where is the leadership pushing back on, on, if nothing else, the humanitarian disaster? Where is the great liberal machine crying that we haven't done enough to help the people? Nothing. Silent. And the, the poor leadership of no planning at all, no pushback on the president, nothing. It's clear now, crystal clear who failed. And it was our military leadership, our political leadership. Even the Taliban performed better than our military and political leadership in that environment. And you know what? The, the, the filthy failures in Washington never even thanked the, the, the Marines. Never even a proper thank you. Leatherneck claims that, the, quote, the old guard needs to hear the stories of young Marines. I agree. But at the same time, let me tell you this. The old guard isn't out of touch, like that statement suggests. We know full well what the hell happened there. The withdrawal was a military failure. Weapons left. All kinds of, we'll never know the end of that, what they're being used for, where they're being used. Financial disaster. All the money being that was spent over there wasted, lives lost. My brother Steve down there, they'll tell you the story down at the VA down there, the legs and the arms, all the cost of that for what? And if that's not enough, what did we do to the poor Afghans? Who speaks up for the young Marines that are dead? We're going to say that they did their best and that they did the right thing, that we do it for each other. Well, we already know that. I didn't need to read that story. It's all good. It's all true. And it's worthy for sure. Honorable to a level most people can't relate to. Of course, the United States Marines, you wouldn't expect anything less. But how about the failures that who led this disaster? What accountability do they have? Sometime when we have more time, I'll tell you why I hate fat generals. It's really true. We shouldn't have any fat generals. Welcome to Project Chaos. I'm Chris Kunkel. I'm a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and author of the book, soon to be released, Victory Over Chaos. I'm so excited about this book. It's the true story behind the Battle of Kafji. It's not a history book. It doesn't read like a history book. It's a legacy. It's telling the true stories behind conflicts and triumphs and to remind veterans, active duty military and our families of the commitment we've made and the duty that we have, acknowledging our victories, our honors that are rightfully ours so that our country can be proud. But it's more than that. War is chaos. Chaos is disorder and confusion, just like in Afghanistan. But we see that all around us today. And the good news is that veterans are well-trained to deal with that chaos. And the stories that we have will inspire you to face challenges with confidence. They're going to allow you to step into the shoes 
of those who have experienced combat or training for combat, providing a unique perspective on what it's like to endure and triumph over the utter chaos that war can bring. We'll have fun, some humor at times, and probably some inappropriate comments, but rest assured, the stories will be epic. Project Chaos is a radio show like no other. You'll hear war stories like you never hear them told before. The truth told by real-life warriors. If you like what you hear, please visit projectchaos.org.org. There's a lot more to see there. The book, um, the radio show, projectchaos.org. Sign up for my email list. Kevin, I want to bring you back on here. Uh, You've heard about this Afghanistan withdrawal, and you know about the conditions and Marines dying. What grade... Would you give the uh, the leadership in that endeavor? An F, absolutely an F. Complete and utter failure of leadership. As I uh, have told you uh, previously in a previous conversation, a term that I've used uh, a number of times is a crisis of integrity. We have a crisis of integrity in the leadership of our military and our country. I don't think it could be more true. You said that to me the other day when we were talking. I put it in my notes, and it really does speak to what you see there. And I know it sounds superficial. It's why I say I, ha- I say I, f- I hate fat generals. They don't even have enough integrity to wear the uniform properly. And I don't expect the average civilian to understand what I mean by that, how important it is. But we do. We do. I don't know. We, absol- we absolutely do. And, uh, you, know, you know, some might say, well, rank has its uh, privileges. But um, in the Marine Corps, we're, we're taught leadership from the front. You lead from the front. If you're going to expect your, your privates and your lance corporals to be in shape and to have proper military uh, bearing and proper military appearance, then if you're a four-star general, you should be demonstrating that same leadership. That's how I feel about it, at least on, on some kind of level. How do you expect to stand in front of that many people? But those are just, uh, like I said, superficial little things. There's a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, my brother. And I know you want to talk about the uh, Major Richard Starr Act. You texted me about it, and I want to get to that. But the first thing I want to talk about, last week on the radio show, I teed up a fantastic little summary of the Battle of Kafchi, which I know you listen to, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate your comments. And then you said to me, you say, well, there's a couple of details I would have told a little differently, which, of course, that got my attention. But uh, one of the things that I've said about this, you know, I was on guard duty. You were on the gun. Uh, now, I moved back and forth or whatever, but we had different roles in a, in a different spot. But I wanted to talk to you about some of that. Um, you had a little bit different take on what had happened with the Saudis over there. Can you speak to that in terms of? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, there was uh, abs- a li- liaison officer between the uh, Saudi forces and the Marine forces. And um, when uh, the the recon team that was, uh, you know, there were two recon teams, but the recon team specifically that we fired our, our mission for, um, the danger close mission that you talked about, uh, there was no... Uh, there was no advising or, or, or telling the Saudis, hey, we're going to do this. We did it the way Marines did it. Hey, we've got Marines in trouble. They called back, called for fire. Our, our FDC uh, dialed up a mission, um, and it just so happens that when you fire an artillery mission, the first round you fire is called an adjust round. 
That's to make sure that the fire direction control has their, you know, they've got their, their dope, right? Their deflection and their elevation, the distance, everything, the wind, they have everything correct so that, uh, you know, they're not sending eight, 16 rounds down range. Just so happened that a dust round came to us because this, uh, Iraqi uh, BMP, which is uh, an armored personnel carrier that uh, of Russian Russian made, had pulled in in front of that building, and they were pretty sure there were spotters in that area. Let me uh, just these, uh, catch up are... to the story real quick, Kevin. I want to bring mm-hmm. everybody just up to speed on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just so everybody's at the same spot in the story. I'm on guard duty. We get a call that uh, Iraqis are, you know, um, invading Saudi Arabia, have taken over the city, massive convoy. Well, we come to find out that it was the Saudis that turned and ran. If you remember, you told me this last week. We moved up closer to the city, and there was two spotter teams. I talked about this that were stuck inside the city that were trapped there. We later learned out that they they stayed there. And basically, when we, when we moved up onto the hill overlooking the city, we fired those rounds. Kevin was on the gun that fired those rounds. I said earlier, I was on gun one. He was on gun two. And that call for fire came into the fire direction control center. And then it comes down to the gun. And the story that Kevin's telling you is that's where they got it. And they were going to fire this. And we're firing from eight miles away. Do you know how far it was, Kevin? You know, I would have to say it's between five and eight. I really didn't know back then. You know, we were, the fog of war was real. We didn't really know exactly where things were back then. We didn't have. So, but it was, it was long range. And so. That first yeah, was, round gets well, that called. particular one. Yep. That particular one wasn't our longest range. I, I remember not in artillery least. speak. Yes, but for the yeah. for the listener, the reason we fire that first round is you're not going to send a, a artillery barrage, is what Kevin's and not make sure you know where it's going to land. So the call comes yeah. from the spotter. You get the call for fire. You shoot. Take it from there, Kevin. Yeah. The uh, so the, the you know the team calls in this this Iraqi. A group of about eight Iraqi soldiers is looking for them, and they're in the uh, on the roof of the building um, in Kofchi, and they call in. I believe they weren't even calling in by voice. I believe they were using like a, a, a Morse code because they were uh, their crypto was they had burned their crypto already. How did you their, hear uh, that? How did you hear that? That because I I started to put that to tell the story that way that it was um, a nonverbal call for fire that it was so close. And you just said the same thing. Do you remember how you heard So, this? yeah, I've done a lot of reading on Kofji. There's some Marine Corps history documents that have been written, um, not until like the mid-2000s where they're written. And uh, they did put that in there, that they were basically uh, using like a Morse code to call back and to call for fire. So you were telling me, and I didn't know this, that those Iraqi Republican guards were hunting down those teams. They were looking for them. They were looking for them because they, I believe they were, they had, first of all, uh, Saddam Hussein had prioritized capturing U.S. military. That would have been a huge win for them had they been able to capture those recon teams that were in the city. They were third Marines who we, you know, directly, you know, we directly supported third Marine regiment. Um, and, uh, they called it for fire. Our FDC dialed up that adjust round, and that came to our gun. And the adjust round was a uh, what's called a used gunner's quadrant mission. This is when you want your elevation to be right on. It's kind of just like like using a very sensitive level for doing uh, you know work in your house or something. And um, we we fired that AT round, a high explosive round, and it went right through the top 
of the BMP, exploded the BMP. Uh, but the Iraqi soldiers were already out for far enough away, I guess, where they weren't injured. Which so is amazing. They start to yeah. And they believe, well, they must be in this building. They're going into this building, going up the stairs. And as you told the story, um, they, uh, the Marines on, 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 on the roof, Corporal Ingram and his uh, team got ready for, for combat. You know, they were like, all right, they're coming up the stairs. We gotta, we're going to have to, you know, get ready for combat. Well, it turns out that they didn't go all the way to the roof. That's they amazing. Only, they only looked. Yeah, they only checked the uh, the the regular areas of the building. They didn't go to the roof, <laughs> and so they get back out on the uh, they get back out on the street, and that's when they call for I believe it was a uh, like a battery one or a battery two of what's called improved conventional munitions. These are ICM rounds. Uh, we're talking about I believe it was eight rounds. There might have been just a, uh, the the whole battery fires one round. Um, that's eight rounds, and each one of those rounds carries 88 anti-personnel grenades in the back of them. And these ICM rounds go over the target, and they shoot these uh, person 88 personnel grenades out onto the target. And so now you're talking about, you know, you do the math: 88 times eight, or it might have been 88 times 16. I believe it was a one round each each gun. That's a lot. Of- <laughs> They said there was nothing left of these soldiers when after those. Let me just describe this a a little bit differently, Uh, because I think I understand, you know, why they didn't go to the roof. Maybe the the timing was a little off in the story, because if 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 that so one round was fired, a higher explosive round. I make sure that the, the battery was on target with where it was being called in. This was all very sensitive because we had to hit close to the building, but not hit the building. And. So they fire the, the, the high explosive round, which is like a, your basic cannon round, really. And it goes right down the hatch of this armored personnel carrier, blows this thing up. These guys are in the stairwell. They come running down at whatever point, and the, call, the next call, the next command that comes in is what's called fire for effect. Well, then the bombs start coming. It's not one at a time. It's wa-boom, wa-boom. And like you said, the, the noise from that, and I believe I did. I never knew that until I spoke to you the other day after writing the book. And I think this is going to be an amazing part of this journey. I never knew about the ICMs. I probably did at the time I was on the gun that day, but and I probably fused up the round for that matter. But I, I don't remember that kind of detail. And um, but now I know why Ingram was shaken the way that he was. And so based on what you explained to me, this is really hilarious to me, you know, you know, we knew that the reason that the story was lied about, that they said that the uh, Saudis had reclaimed the city was for this political correctness thing. But you're saying that there was a rub that we didn't ask for the proper permission before we fired those rounds inside that city, inside Saudi Arabia. There was no no clear permission to do that. And all I'm going to say is, um, I mean, you put a bunch of <laughs> armed Marine artillery batteries in your country and they get attacked. I mean, that. They're going to fight back. I don't know. I thought that would be explicit, wouldn't you, Kevin? You, you would think, right? I mean, I think the average, um, maybe I'm, I'm going to say average civilian, but person who isn't familiar with the way things are done in the military would say, well, you know, there's the enemy. They're attacking you. Attack. You guys are in trouble. You know, put rounds down range. And apparently it did cause uh, a dust up with the, the Saudis because they weren't uh, advised ahead of time. 
even though they, I believe they had already pulled back. They had already retreated. You know, and, they, they should have just let the Lance Corporals go in instead of all these generals. I think we could have cleaned uh, this up very quickly. Well, and this, this goes to what we're talking about in terms of the, you know, uh, when the higher-ups make these uh, political decisions, it's always the lower ranks that suffer. It's always the lower ranks that suffer. They don't suffer. The generals don't suffer when they make these decisions. It's the Lance Corporals. It's the private. It's the corporals. It, you know, these, they're the ones that always suffer when leaders who are supposed to be leaders don't stand up to do what is right in a timely manner. No you know, doubt. It's easy to come back. You know, it's always easy to come, Chris, later on and say, well, we're going to have an investigation into this. I'm like, well, you know, the damage is done at that point. Right. I'll tell you this, Kevin, and for anybody listening. It's not so much that the, that the rank and file is going to suffer at the poor decisions of the leadership because there's no way around that. That's always the way it works, right? You pray that you get good leadership so that you don't have these problems. And I would say, just to be clear, we had phenomenal leadership uh, really to the highest levels I felt like during that time, You know, even, not, even though they may not have been perfect. I agree. We, we were fortunate to have good leadership. Here, here's my, my main problem. My main problem is when they're getting paid by whoever, right? Some other page, some other income stream is is coming in, and they're they're selling out the souls of young Marines for a pittance, while they're making money on it. Whatever the case might be, you know, it's some kind of consulting gig or their career. That's number one. But the second part is, like you said, you know, if the if the sole job of the of the uh, whatever you want to say that career officers on up is solely to protect their own careers. Well, we're never really going to have a, a, a military that shows much strength. And no wonder we have a, a, a recruiting crisis going on. But we'll talk more about that on this radio show. I want to switch gears for a second because, and I don't know if, if the average person will find this interesting or not. I found it really phenomenal when you, when you brought this up about the neatness under the net. And it just, uh, oh, yeah. it was weird to me, right? You and I are similar guys and similar personalities. And I kind of forgot about it. And um, you kind of re- reminded me of it. Uh, I was like, uh, talk about a neat freak on, under the, on, we said under the net. So uh, for the, for, uh, until we made sure that we had air superiority, we were under a camouflage net. And these nets were like the bane of our existence, Kevin. Really, everything that could get caught in the doggone net gets caught in the net. Your ear, your eyelid, your rifle, your front sight post, your canteen, you name it. It all gets caught in the net, right? The net, oh, yeah. the mirrors of the truck, everything. It's just the doggone nets. Anyway, it had to be just right. And I literally, I was telling you this story we're talking about, I literally remember we had duct tape around. The purpose of the duct tape was multifold, but one of the primary reasons we would tape up the ends of any metal instruments so that we were doing night operations. We didn't want to make any noise, and that was to make sure there was no metal clanging on metal. And anyway, one day we're on the crew, and, and somebody had the audacity to leave a roll of duct tape on my beloved tailgate. And I went <laughs> bonkers. I can't believe there wasn't an assault to come. And I look back on it, and maybe you can speak to this too. And I'm like, man, what the heck was wrong with me? I didn't really put it together until you said it. Why don't you talk about your oh, yeah. deep freak uh, episodes there? Oh, yeah, I was the same way. And I just, I just wanted to say one other thing. I want to just give a shout-out to Corporal Ingram 
because he, who was on that recon team, he was injured during that, uh, that ICM barrage that we uh, sent in at mission because uh, it was danger close. And he, I believe, won the Silver Star for doing that. I just wanted to make sure I gave him his proper respect. Interesting. Um, I'd like to find but, him if you ever know, ever run into anybody who might know him. I think he was Charlie Battery, wasn't he? I do know someone who knows him. I'm pretty sure it's our, it's our, uh, our friend, uh, our friend Tom from Your Gun. I ju- he was just, he was just texting me. I texted him over the weekend. I sent him the first show. Uh, Kevin is talking about our brother Tom. <laughs> Tom's like he's got he's going to be listening to this. I got to be a little careful. He says he's got a bunch of photos from Christmas over there. I'm like, yeah, I, I think we were drinking during Christmas. Don't don't quote me on that. I don't know if that's a story appropriate for the. Re- <laughs> we'll leave that in the book. I think <laughs> those were yeah, some fun too late. times. They can't, can't court martial us now. <laughs> it's not that part I'm worried about. But uh, yeah, um, it'll be interesting. Uh, wow, if, if Tom knows Ingram, that'll be. I'll have to ask him about that. That'll be all. That'll be incredible. Yeah. We get Ingram on this yeah. radio show. We've arrived. That would be my my star witness right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. But anyway, you were yeah, a neat but, freak too. You would go killing people. Oh yeah, batting them over the head for leaving a you know one little thing. Yeah. But you said something well, to me. I didn't put this together. The reasoning for that was because if we had to move, we had to move efficiently and quickly. Yes. That was my whole, that was my whole, first of all, as Marines were trained in that way, you know, you were always improving your position. And one of those things is to make sure you're ready to go at a moment's notice uh, with, you know, what's called CSS, CSMO, closed station march order. We had a, we had a a colloquialism for it, which I won't say, (laughs) you know, collect, you know what, move out. Um, But you have to be ready to go fast. You got, you know, especially, you know, you could have incoming rounds coming out. You may have to, or you may be able to get up to a, have to get up to a firing position to support the infantry in front of you who may be under fire. And you got to do that fast. You can't be dawdling around looking for, hey, where's the, where's your gear? Where's, where's your helmet? Where's this? All that stuff has to be, you know, and, you know, from what I always, I always do, hey, this has to be squared away. The other part of it, Chris, I feel like is, which goes into the whole idea of, you know, uh, project chaos is that I believe it's, it was kind of a way to handle the uh, the fog of war, the, the the not knowing. You know, it's it's a it's you know when 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 everything is neat, you feel like you have some control in your little in your little spot. I was and hoping so, you were going to say yeah. that. Yeah, I think I I think I definitely got on the nerve some of my fellow gunmates, but, but you know that's unavoidable anyway the type of situation we're in. I'll tell you what, I think that they could have been a little neater sitting here. No, I'm kidding around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll speak to it on a couple of different things. Um, and, and I, yeah, it, I think it was a weird, like psychological tools, like everything had to be, and you're right. It was that so that we could maintain control and chaos because, you know, uh, that where that duct tape, was, you know, could be vitally important, vitally important. I'll tell you what, with that as a backdrop, I want to keep moving because I know you got some stuff you want to talk about. I'm going to give you time. Um, sure. And I got a long list here. We're not going to get to all of it, but um, I'm going to get to a couple of things. Um, speaking of neatness, I want to talk a little bit about the gas attacks, right? Because, you know, oh yeah, uh, Colin Powell gets up and says weapons of mass destruction, and they never found them, supposedly. I talk about it in the book. There's only two places it came from. Soviets or American? I'll let you narrow it down. Um, I know you have some some firsthand accounts on some of the stuff I talked about. Before I do, I want to share a little story. 
Obviously, with the duct tape story, you get a little sense of uh, how hyper alert we were, how serious we were, how disciplined we were. You know, I talk about those Marines in Afghanistan acting the way that they were. They're going to go from sniper positions to guard duty to carrying babies. How do they do that? Well, they train in 16 hours a day, every movement, every little piece of it over and over and over, every button, every detail is nailed down perfectly so that these things can be executed perfectly. One time, and you're going to talk about this story, it's amazing you brought it up, we hear an explo- a, a, a bang with no explosion, and all of a sudden, from one end of our position to the other, the chemical alarms start going off, and one of the guys didn't have his gas mask, gas mask where it belonged, which is in one place and one place only, and that is on your hip. And I saw him, he was like a fish out of water, and we ended up finding it. But, Kevin, why don't you say, uh, talk about what you saw that day? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember because uh, I was uh, standing right next to the gun looking out. Uh, we were kind of, this was prior to Coptie. This was, I believe, in maybe December of 1990. Uh, I saw the airburst uh, out a ways. Like, you know, I mean, in the air, it's kind of hard to see how tell how far it was. But, you know, a couple of miles maybe out, maybe a mile out in the air, which is how uh, chemical munitions, you know, chemical weapons are delivered. They're delivered by airburst, not uh, not rounds that impact on the ground. So um, that happens, uh, and I'm thinking, hey, uh, that's not good. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> That's what we all thought. That's, right, that's not good. And then we're going into our mop gear, our right, mission-oriented protective posture, our gas mask, and and everything, the chemical alarms all start going off. Um, and then uh, our uh, platoon commander, uh, Ron, does his uh, field tests. I believe he did yes, two or three Yes, we did the same thing. And yep. what happened? That and test strip. All of them, yeah, all of them came back as, you know, he said, gentlemen, we're in a nerve agent environment. And I remember thinking, whoa, at that point, because. I it mean, was nerve was agent, right? It was nerve agent. Nerve agent. Yep. Yeah, nerve agent environment. So they, that was uh, that was a big one because that was the one they kept drilling into our heads. Hey, 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 this is this is why you got to get your gas mask on in like you know three seconds and down and clear your mask and be ready to use your uh, atropine and two pan chloride injections in case you you're going down from a nerve agent. Right. Everybody is very tense on the gun, wondering what's going to happen. Um, you know what I was wondering, point, bro? I was like, what? when are we pulling back to the decontamination area? <laughs> right, right. We never decon. Remember we that did. major from battalion? He's like, ah, it's all good. You can just take it. I'm like, I guess we're yeah, not going fine. to the decontamination area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we went through full unmasking procedures, you know, where you go to the junior Marine, you take his right. I remember that now. Yeah. Who was that? Sergeant, uh, they told that whole story. You take yours. I'm not taking mine off. You take yours off. <laughs> but uh, well, that on, our gun, trip- we had had, hmm? on our gun, we had a couple of new Marines that came to us while we were out there. And, you know, unfortunately for him, but fortunately, <laughs> the nerve agent is not persistent in a desert environment. It's not, it just isn't persistent. It wasn't at a high enough concentration. And um, just basically, you know, between the sun and the wind, 
I guess it just blew away. It wasn't really. Uh, yeah, we're fine. Look, really we've made out great. I actually think it's made me better. Now it's like a vitamin for me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, the test strip though. You were talking about uh, one of those test strips actually made it back to a, a congressional hearing or something like that. You said. Oh well, yeah. This is a test strip that uh, came from what's called the Fox vehicle. The Fox vehicle is um, a uh, basically an NBC vehicle that detects. Uh, nuclear, biological, and chemical, and um, a lot of the a lot of these the chemical alarms, I believe, have a a strip, but none of them seem to make it back in in intact. But the, there was a marine who did hold on to his um, he held onto the strip, the uh, the readout from the Fox vehicle, and it turned out the strip showed levels of sarin. Lewisite and mustard gas used on the battlefield, and and this reason that this is uh, important, you know, kind of goes to the, the you know them changing the story of what happened at Kofji, is that uh, the generals came out and said no, absolutely not. The Iraqis did not fire any chemical munitions, you know, just uh, get that out of your head or whatever. But to include General Boomer, uh, I, I saw him on a, an interview on a, a YouTube video. Uh, page called the American Veterans Center. Um, and he said, absolutely, they didn't use them. And I just kind of wonder why that is. Why is that? I mean, we, we know. We know what happened. We were there. It wasn't a, it, it wasn't a fluke. It's that kind of lack of integrity that just, I think, needs to be I exposed. guess. I don't really want to, you know, I don't really want to call a general, you know, like maybe he doesn't really know. But uh, you would think that there was a, that this, chemical strip was put into evidence uh, in a congressional hearing that, uh, you know, people say, hey, I guess they did use them. Maybe some of the some of the commanders went uh, went off script. Some of the field command, the Iraqi field commanders went off script and decided to use the same tactics that they used in the Iran Iraq war, which they did nothing but, you know, uh, use chemical munitions obtained from the United States and Germany. Yep. That's why they, they said they never found them. Oh, no, we didn't, there was nothing to see here. It's unbelievable. Um, and then even on the VA website, the oil well fires, you know, are choking down that black smoke. And you go on, right on the video, ah, there's no known health indications at all. <laughs> I should go talk to Jim, Jim Green. I'm going to come right back to you, my brother. There's more to talk about. I just want to remind our listeners, projectchaos.org. If you enjoy listening, please share it with any veterans you might know. I'm always looking for veterans who have a story they'd like to share on the show. Uh, go to projectchaos.org.org. If you're a veteran, I'd like to hear from you. Please vic- visit projectchaos.org. I'm trying to com- connect with as many veterans as possible. No spam or silly stuff. I'm just going to keep you uh, updated on the book and the shows and, and things like that. Kevin, it's great talking to my brother. The one thing I'll always be most thankful for is you doing the work you did to bring Alpha Battery together. Um, the early days of Facebook. When I was still on Facebook, I won't even do that. I got a lot more I could talk to you about. I have, like I said, I have a long list, but I want to give you a little time here. Uh, tell us about this major Richard Starr. I know you stay really well plugged in on this stuff, and you've given me a, a lot of great leads. So I'm anxious to hear about this. Yeah, the Major Richard Starr Act is a is a very important act that uh, we've been trying to get passed for a number of years. Uh, it has. Uh, Bipartisan support. This is not a political, um, this isn't a partisan political issue. 
uh, it has huge support in both the Senate and, and, and the House. Uh, this is a, uh, an act that would correct a deficiency, really uh, an injustice that, that's happening to combat injured, medically retired veterans. These are people who the Department of Defense has deemed their injuries came directly from combat and uh, they were medically retired, meaning they were 30% or higher rated by the Department of Defense. Um, so they are owed a certain amount of, of their pension. In other words, say they have about 14 years, they are medically retired, they're not going to get a full pension, but they're going to get a partial pension. They're also eligible to apply for VA disability for loss of future income. Unfortunately, with the current laws being the way they are, what the Department of Defense does is they you will be docked a certain amount of money taken out of your pay each month to people who really can't afford to lose dollars out of their monthly income, people who really, other than people who died for this country, uh, and God bless them and their families, they no one's given more than people who are have been injured in combat. For every year, what happens is they say, "Well, we don't have enough money." Now, Chris, the the uh, the accounting office, the what is it, the GAO, I believe, the General Accounting Office. Uh, I don't know the exact term. They always rate the bills. What are they going to cost? The cost of this bill would be $7 billion spread out over 10 years. That's not $7 billion a year. That's $7 billion spread out over 10 years. And these politicians can't come up with that money. I mean, I think we all know the kind of money that's been spent over just over the past 12 to 18 months in a certain foreign country. Uh, for their defense, and we can't come up with that. It's really wrong, and if your listeners would, please contact your senators and your, your senators and your representatives about, please pass the Major Richard Starr Act in the next National Defense Authorization Act in 2024. Kevin, that's a good word, I appreciate it. I wanna just say this real quickly. You know, Smedley Butler was very outspoken about this issue of the money behind wars. And there is an awful lot of money. You know, what's the defense budget? I think it's almost a trillion dollars or something like that a year. It's over $800 billion. The last one, just the one they just passed. Right. But there's never any money to take care of the veterans on the best, on the back end. Smedley Butler, he said, you know what? We should get that money up front. And that would be the new way to do it. Everybody else does, right? The same way. Um, hey, you know, back to our, our days deployed. Uh, one little funny story I remember. <laughs> Calling down on the, I literally was when that gas attack. I was, I, I was sitting there thinking. By the way, I was thinking, when are we going to the decontamination? I might have even, hey, hey, when are we, when are we going back to the rear? You're not going back. <laughs> I think we all were thinking that. Like, yeah, yeah right. How we were trained. <laughs> get your, get your gear and get back up there where you belong. Yeah. <laughs> get back well, to decontamination. Kept going. We didn't really. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't stop. Exactly. Um, but anyway, I remember. Uh, one dark day, we're all mopped up. Now, just to describe this scene a little second, a second, we're out in the middle of the desert. It's sandy, like deserts typically are. It's dry, and uh, we're doing it. Well, we're in full mop gear. What does that mean? Rubber. So we're in a full, you know, combat uniform with rubber over boots, 
charcoal-lined pants, overpants, and a charcoal-lined over jacket, and a gas mask, and gloves. And who ran out of fuel on gun two? Who was responsible for that? I never got the name. Was that you? Responsible. I missed something there. Responsible. Oh, when the what? call came down to bring fuel to you guys, you gonna say you don't remember? No, uh, to bring fuel. You don't remember? No, I had to walk out there. Actually, this makes the story even worse. It's a good thing hey, I brought it, it up. 30, it was only thirty-three years ago. Ah, uh, we're gonna have to talk more <laughs> offline. This is really bad. Yeah, so I'll tell the story since you conveniently don't remember. I'm not even the one that ran out of fuel. You guys did. So they call down. They're like, "You got fuel?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I got fuel. Of course I did." And then they're like, "Okay, well you're gonna have to meet them halfway." And I'm like, "What?" And I met you out there, you lug. And I don't think you even came halfway. Now that I think about it, it'll all be in my complaint yeah, that's, letter. That's one of those things that's gone with the wind. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Well, let's talk about this for a second. The reunion, because I recommend the veterans. Uh, you know, it's always good to stay connected with your unit. The experience of reconnecting with Alpha Battery. It's been incredibly life-giving for me. It's times that I enjoy, like, more than almost any other. And I think it's it's good for most veterans. I'm sure not every unit has the dynamic that we did, and some have problems. You want to just forget it, whatever the case might be. But how did you get involved in those early days with tracking people down? Do you remember that? You know what? It was just one of those things. I was on Facebook and just like, well, you know, I got people from grammar school contacting me. Why don't I start trying to find guys from Alpha Battery? It was just uh, on a whim, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I had heard, you know, you'd seen stories about World War II guys getting together and Vietnam guys. I was like, well, it's probably time for us to start thinking about uh, getting together. But the first step was to create a group and, and start finding people. And, you know, n- n- obviously nothing, nothing crazy about that. I mean, it's pretty much you know, what, what a lot of people are doing, but uh, I was just an early adopter of Facebook and, and other social media. And uh, once we had enough people in that group, we started, uh, the first thing I did was convert the, uh, the, um, the CD that I had gotten from the local uh, television station in Hawaii that they had made about us. And I converted that um, into uh something that guys could order their own CD. I didn't have. realize you put that together. I have that CD. Yeah, yeah, I did put it together. I put, I put it together so that people could order it, and then we could start to put a little money away to towards a uh, reunion fund. Wow. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, and then when we started to get serious about it, I, you know, I asked for some volunteers to create a, a committee, and we had a little four-person committee, uh, with our platoon commander and a couple of others uh, who, um, you know, we just, uh, you know, I kind of delegated the work out and uh, we put that, that reunion together in Washington, D.C. in 2015. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I don't have to tell you that reunion was something very, very special. And uh, anybody listening who's a veteran, who's, especially if you've been to combat, if you haven't gotten back together with your, uh, with your, your compadres, you really should, you should really do it because it's like you said, it's uh, it was good for the soul. It really was. It was a couple um, of quick highlights on that. We got into the hospitality room that night and you, you welcomed everybody in. And then, I mean, we hadn't seen each other in 30 years. It was amazing. The first time we were all to that level. And I forget what you said. I don't think you remember it. And just without I any, I don't think it was even, I even prepared. I don't think I even prepared any remarks. It just kind of said what uh, I felt needed to be said at the time. 
And then in unison, my six, my daughter, six months old at the time, was there. In unison, everybody belts out, Hoorah! and the, I mean, the walls of the hotel shook. Everybody was, and my daughter, you know, I, thought, I looked over, I thought she'd be crying, and she wasn't crying at all. Her, her eyes lit up. Interestingly, we went to the Marine Corps Museum as part of that visit. I took her and put her on the yellow footprints, and um, everybody's saying, oh, you know, is she going to uh, live your legacy? I thought, oh, let's hope not. My mother was a Marine, Kevin. I don't know if you knew that. I thought, no, I don't want, I don't want my daughter to do it. I don't want my daughter to do it. Uh, that's I'll for tell sure. you, Chris, one of, the, one of the things that really got me, I mean, it was, it was a little bit of a tough year, uh, a tough time for me because my dad had died about a month prior to the reunion. And um, I was up in New York at the time at his house. And I remember prior to the reunion thinking, what's going to happen when these guys get together? Is everyone going to get along? Are people going to drink too much and start arguing and fighting? Well, that was all dispelled from the moment I started seeing people come into the hotel. Yes. I there, and I was, in the, I was in the lobby a lot of the time because I was just, just nervous. And I want you know, I've seen people come in. And I'm telling you, it was like a day had not passed. It was weird in that regard. It was like a day hadn't passed. Yep. That's how close that unit was. That's how good Alpha Battery was as a unit. It's a, a special unit. And I did say, I know I said that at the first reunion. That was a special unit. And uh, I talk about it, it in the book. so good. And I talked about it last week. What makes Alpha Battery special? Hold on one second, Kevin. There's a little story I want to tell. I'll take a little break here to tell. Uh, but still tied back to what we're talking about. Right out of the Marine Corps, barely 21 years old, my first job was working on a survey crew, literally holding the dumb end of a tape, if you can imagine that. And there was a lot more to it than that. But I had an incredible party chief, a guy by the name of Michael Tacanelli, a firm called Stout Tacanelli & Associates. And at that time, here in Montgomery County, it seemed like we were staking out every job that was being built across the county it was a crazy days, incredible things that we did, building roads, even uh, laying out some railroad spurs. But I want to say thank you today to STA Engineering, my brother Michael, uh, who brought me down here. Michael Tacanelli can help you with any uh, needs you have, land surveying, engineering, designs, approvals, property surveys. They have decades of practical experience solving complicated infrastructure and regulatory issues. You know land surveying is like an ancient art, but it's been modernized and everything's computerized today. They have the latest equipment with the knowledge behind it. Experience still counts, and that's where STA Engineering stands out. Many years of successful, long-lasting projects. And I'm so appreciative of the sponsorship. Thank you, STA Engineering. I'm going to bring you back here, uh, Kevin. Um, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. <clears throat> I didn't know that at the at the reunion. You're from New York, right? Yeah, born and raised in Queens, New York. Queens, that's where my wife's family is from, uh, Lower East Side. Um this story up there, this Marine who uh, jumped in to a situation on the subway and ended up killing the guy. Are you familiar with the story? I am familiar with it, yes. What do you say to the prosecutor who's prosecuting a Marine in a situation like that? Well, I mean, it has a chilling effect on other citizens, not just Marines. Anybody who would want to step in and try and do the right thing to protect the people around them. You know, you could say, oh, well, he didn't do this right or he didn't do that right. It's pretty clear that this was a career criminal who was involved, somebody who is uh, not in good health to begin with. And he was put into a, uh, he put him into a chokehold. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the Marine who did it. Um, but, uh, 
absolutely should fall under the under the auspices of a good Samaritan type of a law. But uh, what does that say about our society uh, when, you know, it, it's okay for a criminal to go around, you know, uh, yelling and, and, and hitting people, uh, old people on a train or on a train, in a train station. And if somebody tries to step in and stop them, that uh, the city of New York is going to now prosecute you and say, well, you know, you, you, you're, you're a bad boy. You did the wrong thing. I think it should be giving them a medal and, and moving on. I think the same thing. And I'm glad you said that that way. That was awesome. And it's a big part of what I want to do here on Project Chaos. That people need to start waking up and understanding what's happening. You know, today it's, it's the young Marine that they're going to lock up for what? Doing the right thing. And I said, well, this is a Marine. It's, you know, one of those guys who killed somebody. But it's not just him. You see it happening in other areas where people are trying to step in, do the right thing, saving people's lives. If they stop doing it, what's going to happen as a result of that? What is going to be the impact of that? It's only negative. It's not just about Marines or the Marine Corps, the legacy of the Marine Corps, or veterans at all. I've said this before. The show isn't meant to be uh, about the Marine Corps or just Marines. It's about the military, our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen, my son's active duty Air Force. And we all work together under the same umbrella. And I think it's a real shame that the damage that um, is done to this country. Kevin, I only have time for, for one more question here with you. It's kind of a multi-part question. Do you remember the day that you took your oath of enlistment? I do. I do remember. It was in, it was in Brooklyn, New York. Where at? At the MEP Center? At the MEPS, and I always remember, forget the name of it. It's Fort something. <laughs> it's right by, uh, I think it's right by like the Throgsnick Bridge. So my second part to that, so you go down there, was that 1988? It was 1989. 89, okay. I was 88. You came in a little bit after me, 89. Do you remember what the country was like then? Yeah, I, re- I mean, yeah, as much as I, I was paying attention at that age, you know, but uh, I think we had just, you know, we had just come off the Ronald Reagan era. And uh, I think, you know, I, I, Ronald Reagan was just one of those people people that I always saw as, you know, he was just a leader. He was a real leader. He always made you feel good when he talked. He made you feel good about the country. And I think the there was a much more patriotic feeling in the country at the time. If I had to, if I had to, uh, I would say at a minimum, at a minimum, I got to run here, Kevin, I got to let you go. Thank you so much. I was going to ask you how it compared to now. I know you take that oath very seriously as we all do. Appreciate your service. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, my brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you to the sound team here at WWDB. We appreciate the support and great work. Thank you to Beasley Media for hosting us here. Don't forget to check out the Don't Back Down show with Stan Casaccio, Andy, and others. Wednesday at 1300 hours. It's one o'clock for you civilian types. Conservative Voice with Don Beischel, Friday at noon, available at WWDBAM860 or the WWDBAM Talk 860 app. Listen to the whole station right there from the app. I want to remind you of the sacrifice that Marines made in Afghanistan and many other places around the world, as I indicated in our first show last week, and I continue to remind you of not just our Marines, but many service members. That when the situation is at its worst, our young Marines are at their best. And my point in sharing that with you is that you can too. And I remember this coming up during COVID, standing in front of a group of people. Something big is going to happen, and history will remember you by your actions. Here's what I would say to you. Take nothing for granted because things change fast. It's called chaos, and we'll help you get through it. Sua Sponte, non defice, semper fidelis. I'm Chris Kunkel. Make it a great day. Thanks for listening.